welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dylan Gilbert, Policy Counsel at Public Knowledge. We will discuss the new white paper, Making Sense of the Termination Right, How the System Fails Artists and How to Fix It, which he co-authored with Meredith Rose and Elisa Valentin. So welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. So, so Dylan, I, I really enjoyed this white paper, especially because it's uh, a topic that uh, I've long been interested in, but don't really know as much about as as I could. And I think that's true, not only of a lot of people kind of involved in the copyright space, but even more so of maybe people who aren't and who aren't as familiar with copyright doctrine. So so I wonder if you could start by just explaining a little bit about what exactly the copyright termination right is and and why was it created? Yeah, sure, no problem. You know, I I think that if if somebody comes to you and tells you that uh, they understand everything about the termination right, then frankly they're they're trying to sell you something. Uh, it's notoriously difficult. Uh, this was something that, at least when I was a law student, the termination rights section on my uh, final exam was the bane of my existence. Um, and we'll probably be getting into many of the reasons why at some point here. But yeah, so to get back to just what it is generally, it's a small but very powerful right that is found in sections 203 and 304 of the Copyright Act. Um, and so, yes, the, uh, small but mighty. It's kind of the mighty mouse of copyright, I like to describe it as. Um, and so a good way, I think, to, to explain it is to sort of put it in the context of a scenario. So let's imagine that you are a talented young writer. You've written a novel. Uh, it's great. And it's starting to get some interest from publishers. And so a publisher approaches you and says, hey, we think that your novel's great. And here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to put a lot of money into it. We're going to promote it and distribute it. You're going to be the top uh, search result on Amazon. You're going to be in every window of every bookstore. We're getting you on, you know, <laughs> uh, Good Morning America. We're getting you on the Ipsa Dixit podcast. We're, we're everything. And so, you know, you're thinking that's exactly what I want, right? You're, you're, you're ambitious. And so they say, okay, here's the deal. We've got to do a contract. And because even though we, th we think your book's great, it's got a lot of potential, we're still taking a risk on you. There's no guarantee that this is going to be, you know, the next Harry Potter or Hunger Games. Um, but we think it could be. But in order to make this arrangement fair to us as the publisher, we, you're going to need to sign over the rights that you have, the copyright essentially that you have in your book. We're, you're going to need to give that to us. And so you sign a contract and basically give your rights to the publisher. Now, there's a number of different types of contracts that exist in the creative industries, right? And it can depend on the medium. It, it's, there's a lot of variety. It depends on the size of the grantee, right? So you could be a major a major publisher, a major record label, it could be an independent. And of course, artists nowadays have a better chance than they ever have had to self-publish. But there's going to be a number of people that would still prefer to partner with a corporation. And so what happens then is, you know, the terms of that contract di dictate what what the future is of your work, but you could theoretically, and these exist, you could sign away the rights to your work forever in perpetuity. 
So where does the termination right come in? Well, where it comes in is after a certain period of time has elapsed, uh, it's a minimum of 35 years. So it's a significant period of time. Um, you can come back, the artist can come back to the publisher and say, hey, uh, I am going to terminate that contract. You know, that contract we signed 34 years ago, it is now terminated, uh, which means that uh, it's no longer valid. I get to get my rights back that I gave to you. Um, and they say, well, we, we contracted, it's a contract, you, you know, you can't do that. And he says, well, the termination right is inalienable. Uh, in other words, you can't even contract it away. We, we, we waive our rights all the time in real life, right? When we go to uh, uh, scuba diving or go on a zip line, you essentially sign, <laughs> say, sign away your life. You know, you're not, we're not responsible for anything, including your death. But you can't do that here. You can't sign away your right uh, uh, under the termination right. That makes it enormously powerful. Um, uh, and so, uh, or alternatively, what you could do is you could use the 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 prospect of termination as leverage uh you being the artist and you can say so look how about um i know that you still want to have my the rights to my work publisher but uh why don't we why don't we renegotiate let's get let's revisit this deal because when i signed it initially as a young as a young author i didn't have any leverage because i was an unknown quantity uh but now i've proven myself to be somebody that is uh marketable and uh, let's get me a better deal. So the termination right has serves kind of two functions. It can either be used to just get your rights back, or it can be um, used as leverage to you know um, renegotiate or renegotiate a new deal that might be more favorable. Mm. Well, so imagine I'm an author and I want to exercise the termination right that I'm granted under the Copyright Act. Like, how would I go about actually doing that as a practical matter? And why is it, do you think, that the termination right has become kind of especially salient or especially important in the last, you know, five or 10 years? Yeah. So I think it's worth um, kind of going back and looking at the history of the termination right to kind of to answer this question. Um, so when we look, uh, go back in time, get in the time machine and go back to the 1909 Copyright Act, uh, under that act, authors enjoyed an initial 28 years of copyright protection. And then that could be renewed. Um, when the first 28 elapsed, you could renew it for another 28 years. Um, uh, but if you didn't do that, if you didn't renew, um, your right would automatically revert. Your rights would automatically revert back to you. So, in other words, um, uh, but you know, you could you could sign that away as well, right? So you could say, "Hey, I'm 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 going to go into this publishing deal that I something similar to what we just described, but it's now back way back in time." And uh, the publisher can basically say, "Well, you know, uh, in order for us to give you this deal, you're going to have to sign away the possibility of renewing your right." And so, in in, in other words, uh, that's just part of the initial licensing contract. Um, but that kind of frustrates the purpose, the policy goal of the 1909 Act, which was automatic rights reversion, um, uh, because, you know, you essentially contracted that away. Um, and so what we're seeing from the get go, even pre-termination, right, is this in interesting struggle or tension between 
the, the freedom to contract, which is something that courts have historically given a lot of deference to, and the, the will of Congress. Uh, someone challenged, there's a case of Fisher versus Whitmark in which there was a challenge to this, this practice of, um, you know, assigning away your renewal, right? But Supreme Court said, you know, look, this is this is okay. They, they sort of exercise deference to the terms of the contract, essentially saying, you know, nobody's going to pay an author for something that he can't sell. Um, and so Congress took a look at that and said, wait a second, you know, this is later on now. We're getting up to the t- 1976 for the rewrite for the, co- the Copyright Act. And Congress is saying this whole system isn't working as we intended. So they created the new, the you know, what we have is our termination right, which was this sort of um, kind of similar but different. Um, shorter time period. It was a, at that time rather than fifty six years, which was an, an essentially the kind of deal that you would in, enter into after thirty five years, as mentioned before. Or there's there's a lot of complexity to it depending on when the deal took place. But you've got a, a relatively shorter period of time. And again, the key thing is it's inalienable. You can't contract it away. But kind of puzzlingly, they also Congress put in place a number of um, kind of complex eligibility, timing, formalities requirements on artists that needed to be fulfilled in order to exercise the right. And that is kind of puzzling. I think when we look at it sort of in contrast to, you know, the Berne Convention, where we had this globally, this trend towards loosening up uh, formalities, right, and 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 of course, America joined that uh, later in the eighties. Um, so, kind of, even despite that trend, here we had almost the opposite effect, where we were piling on a whole bunch of complex formalities, um, and what that created was was headaches for for artists that you know have this powerful right that's inalienable, but suddenly you have to go through um, a, a complex ordeal. Uh, just to to exercise it. So to give you just you know a, a, a quick example of what that would look like, um, let's say that um, let's let's say that this is uh, the 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 original author we were talking about in the first example. Let's say now this was that author's uh, dad. So that author uh, is uh, hanging out. It's the 1960s, and the author gets copyright in a biography in 1960, grants the rights to the book to their publisher in perpetuity. So because this was taking place before 19, January 1st, 1978, Section 304C of Copyright Act, one of the termination right provisions would be the one that applies. So now what needs to happen is the author needs to pick a date of termination, but that date of termination can only fall within a specific five-year window. And per the terms of the statute, that would be sometime between 2016, June 1st, 2016, June 1st, 2021, which is like where we are now, right? And this is this is 60 years later. And so, okay, so the author is like, great, uh, now what? You know, talking to their lawyer, because presumably you're going to have to lawyer up to do this. The lawyer is like, all right, well, let's let, why don't we pick June 1st, 2020, and that's the date of termination. Now you have to file a notice of termination that would be recorded with the copyright office. That needs to be served on your original publisher, but it can, it has to be served on the publisher 
either after June 1st, 2010 or before June 1st, 2018. And then suddenly you're like, wait, what? You know, there's, this is, <laughs> this was the stuff that was on the final exam that we were talking about earlier, where it's just like, you know, numbers, lawyers and numbers. And, and I can assure you as a, a, a former working musician and a lot of my work, uh, friends that were musicians and artists and creatives, in all seriousness, many are dyslexic, many, you know, have learning disabilities. This is the kind of stuff that is not, why an artist is an artist they're not looking to do this kind of thing they're looking to create their art and yet they're an artist is sort of subjected to trying to figure all of this out and the the notice itself for example has to have, you know meet sufficient formalities um and so that that creates quite a quite a hassle to exercise this very powerful and, and otherwise simple right which is kind of counterintuitive Mm. Well, so it's my understanding, as you as you point out, that simply asserting the termination right can be maybe more difficult than we think it ought to be. But then there's additional problems. Like it seems to me like a lot of authors aren't even aware that the termination right exists in the first place. And then even if they are aware and they try to assert it, there's a lot of ways that contracts can introduce uncertainty in their capacity to effectively assert the right as a practical matter, even if it seems like under the plain language of the statute, ultimately they ought to be able to prevail. Is that a, is, is that a fair assessment of like the different kinds of problems we're, we're looking at here? That, that's a very fair assessment. Absolutely. I think that there's um, a significant problem with information asymmetries or, you know, just to put it more simply, just imbalances of information uh, on the on the part of an author or an artist, and um, kind of sophisticated companies usually that they're partnering with, um, uh, and you know there's going to be an incentive if the company can get its uh, its valuation is based on the amount of works that it owns. Then of course that's, the company would be incentivized to hold on to that and to not tell you know it's not like the companies would be like oh hey by the way you know you can get this back if you want <laughs> you know that's not that's not really the way it's going to work uh and then similarly to get to your point about the exceptions there's two there's two exceptions that are i think at the core of a lot of the dysfunction that that we discovered in our um sort of quest to learn more about the termination right the first one is the work for hire exception which I think is a little bit of a misnomer, um, not to get too in the weeds on copyright, but I'm sure plenty of listeners here that are um, that are that are uh, copyright wonks, if not actual you know, lawyers and, and and professors. But the work for hire doctrine is a doctrine in which um, if uh, if uh, an artist or or some you know a creative of some sort creates a work uh, in the in the scope of his or her employment. Uh, an example I like to use is something like a graphic designer. So, you know, you're an employee of uh, a graphic design firm and they want you to do something for an ad campaign. Well, as an employee, you're when you create that, it's a creative work that likely will 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 qualify for copyright protection. But you're doing that as an employee. And so you're basically creating something uh, for your employer under the work for hire doctrine. Then you never own the copyright uh, in the first place of that uh, of that work that you created. It's 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 owned by the company. Um, and so in that way, it kind of makes sense that there would be a work for hire exception to 
to the termination right because it's like, well, you don't have anything to terminate in the first place. It's just a little bit strange that it's called an exception because, uh, again, as mentioned, assuming that it is an actual work for hire, then you know the author never assigned or licensed over any rights in the first place. However, one thing that's really important to keep in mind is that work for hire, as a lot of folks know here, is is a legal doctrine that is in many ways usually a judicial determination. Uh, there's certain things in the statute that say like, yeah, this is this is a work for hire. No, no, no ifs, ands or buts. But many times it's going to depend on statutory interpretation, which is something that the judges do. And so if you've got a contractual clause, right, that's, let's say let's go back to our original example with the publisher. If this would be a little bit weird because they probably wouldn't do this. Let's let's tweak it a little bit and say that you're a young musician or a recording artist and you enter into a record deal. And what the record deal basically says is this, this master that you make, this master recording is a work for hire. And so if you come back later to terminate, to exercise your termination, right. And try to get your master back from the record label, they'll be like, no, 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 no. It, 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 you don't qualify. Look at the contract. It is a work for hire. Well, if if you disagree, <laughs> uh, somebody's going to be right. Somebody's going to be wrong. And by the way, um, well, and let's get to this. So then you're going to probably have to go to litigation because it's going to be the judges that are going to make the final determination on whether it really is a work for hire. Uh, interestingly, what we saw is that under the controlling lines, lines of cases, uh, usually a sound recording will not be deemed to be a work for hire, but it's not definitive. So it's always something that uh, a record label in this instance would certainly want to argue um, because they want to hold on to the master again, probably for valuation sake, but they could have any number of reasons. But there's an incentive here f for litigation. Well, that means that as the artist, you are going to have to lawyer up and that's expensive. Uh, and, and, and I think that this is sort of shedding a light on or at least creating a contrast between Congress's original intent, right, which was kind of twofold. It was an economic incentive or an economic rationale saying, look, the artist should be able to enjoy the later economic success of their art. And then there was a moral rationale saying we recognize that there were inf there were power imbalances or negotiating imbalances earlier on for these artists, and we want to allow them to come back and um, and enjoy sort of an equitable share of their success. And you know, if, if that's the intent of Congress, that is rubbing up against the incentive structure that has been created through the exceptions like the work for hire exception and all these formalities, which really place a significant burden on the artist. And um, again, look, the, the courts, first of all, you're probably going to have to go to court to figure out the, the, the work made for hire determination, but also uh, oftentimes you'll see courts, if there's things that are placed in, in, in the contract, courts are going to defer to the contract because that's what courts do as we've mentioned before with the with the freedom to contract. So it's a really interesting and problematic tension and as we can as far as we can tell it's creating a lot of dysfunction 
uh, in the system and, and, and real challenges for artists who, uh, from what we can tell, are, are having trouble getting their rights back. So as I, mean, I understand it, when people tend to think about the termination right to the extent that they think about it at all, it's often in the context <laughs> of kind of distributional equity between authors and publishers. In other words, who's going to internalize the ongoing benefits of legacy works that still have significant economic value and the termination right enables authors to internalize some of those rights after a period of time if it turns out a work is really valuable. But some people have pointed out that there's also kind of an efficiency potential here to the extent that, you know, sometimes publishers, if works that they happen to have purchased a long time ago, no longer have significant market value, they sort of lack a sufficient incentive to make those works readily available to the public. And, right. and that authors might actually be able or be more inclined to make those works available because they have an additional emotional investment in them. Do you think that that also would be reflected in congressional intent? That's an interesting question is with regard to congressional intent. I, I, I would think, I would think, yeah, I mean, to the extent that what we're talking about here with creatives exercising this right is the ability to fully participate in the social, economic, cultural and economic life of the country, right? It's a, a kind of a core social justice issue. Uh, Karen Temple, actually the former um, uh, uh, register of copyright, mentioned in a in a hearing not too long ago that copyright is a social justice issue, and I and I think that that a lot of that underpins what we're talking about with copyright law, and part of that, as as you mentioned, is access to works, and and when we look at uh, literary works, for example, is a good example of where a number of works from the 20th century are either out of print or they're just sort of lying, sitting somewhere in a, uh, in a vault or, or God knows where, um, but they're not being made available. And, uh, and, and a lot of these works, A, are, are works that have, you know, significant cultural historical value, but, but getting back to what you were saying earlier, it's also frankly works that mean a lot to, uh, the artist, you know, to the author. And, and if they think that it might be one of those situations where the author wrote a book that was maybe kind of fell flat because it wasn't the right time when it came out, but now it's, it's, it's relevant again, you know, it's something that really has an audience and, and the artist should be able to, uh, to, to have a new audience that can access this and, and and then of course the uh, the author can monetize it can 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 help uh, earn a living through this so yeah I, I think that I think that I don't know if it was it was expressly a congressional intent but I think it's certainly implicitly like part of the big big picture here right with regard to what what the aim is of the termination right and and why it's so important that that the the system is functioning properly. Mm. Well, so in the white paper, you make some suggestions about how the kind of geography, as it were, of the termination right could be altered to make it work more efficiently, more effectively, and more consistently with congressional goals and social policy. I wonder if you could kind of pick out some of the most important ones of those and talk about kind of what kinds of changes you'd like to see happening and why you think that they would make the termination right work better. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, I think the most interesting and certainly the most radical would 
would kind of be to go back to the 1909 Act automatic reversion type of of mechanism, right? So this would be something where the termination right vests automatically after a certain period of time. So let's assume for now that it would be the 35 years after the the license or the grant or the right. Uh, once that clock hits, boom, you've got your rights back. Okay, so that's elegant. Um, and certainly helps to address these information and power asymmetries that we touched on earlier. Uh, however, it would be, I mean, there would be some things that we would need to uh, to work out. For one, if, if, if you actually want to renegotiate your deal, you would probably need to have some, some, some mechanism in place where you could delay that automatic reversion or opt out or something, probably like a delay, right? Or you say, no, 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 hold on. Like, uh, I want to re- renegotiate. Of course, this would be incredibly disruptive to standing contracts, things that already exist. Um, and it, there would be a ton of disputes over joint authorship, right? If it, if, if it automatically reverts back, it, you know, if, the, if you're just the one author of a novel, that's one thing. But what about if it's a, a song and there's, a, you know, a whole bunch of people involved in the creation of the song, all of whom think that they're the author, that could be a mess. Um, but most importantly, I think the, 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 one of the problems with this fix, despite its elegance, is it doesn't get to the exceptions. So, for example, the work for hire exception that we just talked about would still be in place. So even if you got it back, uh, uh, you know, a publisher or, or a record label or whatever, the, whoever the grantee is will be like, sorry, look, this was a work for hire. And then you have to go to court anyway. Uh, so that's not necessarily the best, the best fix, although it's something that's worth looking into, right? Um, let's talk about the work for hire exception, for example, doing something to fix that. Well, um, what you could do is you could just basically revise the work for hire language. You could basically say, well, you know, uh, uh, the termination right provision actually uh, does not, you know, if you have a work for hire, then you still do qualify for a termination. Uh, or you could, you could clarify work for hire, uh, in the definition of work for hire itself. I think that that's the better approach. One thing that we didn't talk about at the, at the beginning here was a lot of artists are now, or sorry, not even now they do now, but the, even in the past, artists had used something called a loan out corporation uh, and, and so you structure yourself as uh, as sort of have a corporation that's representing you. It's good for tax purposes. It's good for a whole bunch of reasons. But sometimes the contract will be sort of undertaken by your loan out corporation. And that makes an interesting kind of an interesting question with regard to, well, wait a second, if you executed that through a loan out corporation, is that actually executed by the author? Because <laughs> uh, if it's not, then there's nothing to terminate. So you could you could do some clarification around the work for hire definition to say that if you do grant, you know, execute a grant through a loan out corporation, it, that's deemed to be executed by the author under the plain language of the statute. Um, and, I, and, you know, another, another quick sort of potential fix that, that could be explored with just making the, the, the period that elapses before the termination right is available to be shorter uh, and this would this could potentially help with a number of things like joint authorship disputes because the authors themselves would be more likely to be alive, and we would have a better chance of documented evidence potentially. Um, and also getting back to your your point about 
of access to works, um, a greater chance because the author might be alive or to, to sort of take that back more quickly to use the work in whatever way the author would like to do. Um, uh, or, you know, frankly, it would just help to, it would help to, to mitigate this problem with things just sort of sitting on shelves and not being used at all. I will mention that it's interesting. There's an interesting twist on there with, with, with music, I think, because you're seeing with Spotify, Apple music and certain streaming services that catalog is really important there. Right. So if a record label and you're negotiating with a Spotify, you, you the more the more stuff that you have to sell to Spotify, the better of a bargain you're going to be able to get, which ultimately does help your artists. So there's a there's a uh, it would be a little bit something that would be needed to look at as far as like, well, does a shorter term make sense in the context of sound recordings versus versus uh, literary works? Enormously complex, right? And so I think for that reason, we think that the best policy solution right now is to have the Copyright Office conduct a formal study. The Copyright Office has done a number of studies on certain areas of copyright law, like section, like the 1201 uh, anti-circumvention provisions, Section 512 intermediary liability, although who knows when that's actually going to come out, uh, moral rights study. It's something that the Copyright Office is well positioned to do. There is so much complexity here that it's worth a very, uh, you know, detailed and rigorous analysis. One problem here that we didn't touch on too much is that there's kind of a, a real lack. It's not kind of. There's a significant lack of public informa- publicly available information here because to the extent that the termination right is be- being successfully exercised, a lot of those negotiations or the results of those negotiations are locked up in non-disclosure agreements. And so we would have to have some kind of mechanism in place at the Copyright Office where uh, stakeholders could submit confidential documents voluntarily, either in a redacted form or under seal, in order to to help ease, again, some of these information imbalances. And we can say, okay, here's where it's working. Here's where it's not. But look, we've see, we Sting, Joni Mitchell, they have filed notices of termination. We have no idea if they've been able to exercise their termination, right? We know that Billy Joel was unable, unable to exercise, well, reportedly unable to, to exercise his termination, right? And, and frankly, it doesn't get much more you know, successful and, and wealthy than that. So something's going wrong. <laughs> so we need we, we need to figure this out. And, and I think that having Congress, uh, you know, tell the Copyright Office to conduct a detailed study is the right approach. And we're, we're hoping that that we want to sort of raise awareness around this issue and also have folks, you know, connect with their members and, and try to get get some momentum going for the Copyright Office to do such a study. So, Dylan, in in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on the termination right in relation to copyright policy and so the normative premises of copyright policy writ more broadly. I mean, are there reasons to think that it would be consistent with the sort of goals and uh, objectives of copyright law and copyright policy to ensure that the ultimate long-term sort of custodians of works of authorship are the authors or the author's estates rather than necessarily publishers in every case? 
Yeah. I, I, again, I think that it, it, it kind of gets back to what we touched on a little bit earlier about this being a social justice issue, but in, in that, in that copyright in many ways is, is a social justice issue. It's a, it's about allowing authors to have creative control. And that includes reaping the economic benefits of their work. And so it, it, to the extent that the author is empowered to do that, that's something that we should be, that's a policy that we should be pursuing. And the termination right really, it doesn't get much more straightforward than than the termination right when it comes to saying, all right, we're putting the, the author in control of their work rather than having it sitting on a shelf somewhere. Uh, this allows, again, for um, the author to be able to uh, be justly compensated for their work, and also to to, to encourage the proliferation uh, of of these these important cultural works. Um, and frankly, if the author decides that they want to, um, you know, uh, do something, if they want to, for example, enter it into the public domain, uh, they could do that. Uh, or if they, you know, whatever it, it might be that the author chooses to do. Uh, they should be the person that's that's in charge of this, and I think that the termination right really is is the right that equips the authors to do this. So we want to make sure that the system is working uh, in a fair and functional way. Great. Well, thanks, Dylan. I really enjoyed the white paper, and uh, I'm glad you guys did it because I think it's a really important issue that has not gotten nearly enough attention. Well, thanks for that. I'm glad you liked it, and and thank you so much for having me on. This has been great. Ils ont changé 
Mm-hmm. 